Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. The reading this morning is Psalm 54. For the director of music with stringed instruments, a masculine of David, when the Zippites had gone to Saul and said, Is not David hiding among us? Save me, O God, by your name. Vindicate me by your might. Hear my prayer, O God. Listen to the words of my mouth. Arrogant foes are attacking me. Ruthless people are trying to kill me. People without regard for God. Surely God is my help. The Lord is the one who sustains me. Let evil recoil on those who slander me. In your faithfulness, destroy them. I will sacrifice a freewill offering to you. I will praise your name, Lord, for it is good. You have delivered me from all my troubles, and my eyes have looked in triumph on my foes. This is the word of the Lord. Well, do keep that uh, psalm open in front of you. We'll be referring to it as we go. Let me just move this microphone. Why don't we pray again just before we start? Let's pray. Father God, please show us wonderful things from your word. Give us food for the week ahead, spiritual food to make us strong and healthy And form us in the likeness of your Son, our King, the Lord Jesus. For his name's sake we pray, and for our good. Amen. Well, I have a friend who loves doing bus stop evangelism. I don't know about you, but even the thought of it makes my toes curl. Having to talk to strangers, oh, it's really difficult. But he always says it's, it's easier to be rejected by people you'll never meet again than by people close to you, family and friends. Rejection by people we, we might expect to be on our side, to embrace us, to be for us, because they're close to us. Well, that's far more unsettling than the rejection of a stranger, he says. I wonder if you've ever experienced it. I've got a relative, a churchgoer, and when I first became a Christian and got all excited about the gospel, I was trying to tell all my family about my faith. And my relative told me I should stop. Uh, They told my family to ignore me because I had a savior complex, they said. And it was deeply unsettling. Because this family member had been a rock to me over the ups and downs, over the years. And, well, I thought they were a Christian. Maybe they are. Had I got something wrong? Had I been disrespectful and discourteous? I I racked my brains. I, I, I searched my heart. I don't think I had. It was just bewildering. I wonder, have you ever experienced that kind of rejection from someone close to you. Today's psalm helps to arm us for that kind of rejection. Uh, Psalms 52 to 55 
you may have noticed, form a block of psalms. They're all called maskils. Psalm 52, a maskil. Psalm 53, a maskil of David. Uh, Psalm 54, a maskil. And Psalm 55, a maskil. And these maskils, they're all set in a period when David has been anointed king by Samuel, the prophet. David was the Messiah or the Christ. In other words, the anointed king of his day. But he hadn't yet fully taken rule. King Saul was still on the throne and Saul wanted David dead. And the unsettling truth that's revealed across Psalms 52 to 55 is that the people who join Saul in hating King David and trying to put him to death, that they're not just baddies out there, but betrayers in here, even in David's inner circle. I don't know whether you remember, but in Psalm 52, uh, Matt preached to us, we saw Doeg. Now, Doeg was an Edomite, a foreigner who'd emigrated to Israel to serve King Saul. And Doeg betrayed and then brutally slaughtered a family of priests who had supported David. And you could just about excuse that in some sense, couldn't you? You could say, well, maybe Doeg is an Edomite. You might know the nation of Edom. They were natural enemies of Israel. And maybe some of that enmity had lingered in Doeg's heart, even though he'd emigrated to Israel. But next, we saw Psalm 53, a meditation on how all mankind rejects God, how no one is righteous, no one seeks God. And last week, if you were here, you'd have heard Andy point out that the psalm makes reference to, well, a man from the tribe of Judah, Nabal. The first line of Psalm 53, if you've got your Bibles open, look there, the fool says in his heart, the word there for fool is Nabal. And Nabal... (laughs) was a man to whom David had done nothing but good. They were from the same tribe. David had looked after his shepherds in the wilderness, but Nabal refused to help David in his hour of need. But then again, maybe we can kind of excuse that as just a a, a one-off. Maybe Nabal was just a bad egg in the tribe of Judah. Surely the rest of the tribe are gonna support David, aren't they, The, the rightful king? Well, Psalms 54 and 55 drive the point home even further. Today, in Psalm 54, we see the rejection of people again from David's tribe, from the city of Ziph. And when we pick up again next summer with Psalm 55, if we keep doing the Psalms, we'll see the betrayal of David's close, close friend, You see, these psalms, they're giving us concentric circles of betrayal which move closer and closer to David's inner circle. Closer and closer to the very inside of what should have been his supporters. And each betrayal is more shocking than the last. I guess then I I shouldn't have been surprised by my relative's rejection. But of course, that doesn't make it easier to face, does it? Well, the betrayal of the Ziphites today in Psalm 54, it wouldn't have been easy for David. Being from the tribe of Judah, the city of Ziph, they should have been his supporters. 
They would have been at weddings together growing up. They would have had all sorts of family ties. These are the people who should have been rooting for David more than anybody for him to become king. You know, that's why David had fled to hide amongst them because he thought there he would be safe. But in fact, these people gave him up to death. They turned Judas. Look at the title of the psalm. For the director of music with stringed instruments, a mascal of David, when the Ziphites had gone to Saul and said, is not David hiding among us? And let's be clear, this isn't a game of hide and seek. The Ziphites are handing him over to death because that's what Saul wanted to do to him, to kill him. Now, of course, David is given to us in the Psalms, isn't he? Is a, a prototype of the ultimate Messiah to come, the ultimate Christ, the ultimate anointed king, Jesus himself. And just as David was betrayed by his own people, so too Jesus, of course. Do you remember that famous line from John's gospel? He, he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. And of course, Judas, called the traitor by John, betrayed him. You see, God wants us to, to face up, to wise up to the reality of betrayal as followers of King Jesus, to the reality of being rejected by people we might expect to be for us. So don't be surprised when insiders in your family betray you. Don't be surprised if a family member hates you for following Christ. Don't be surprised if even one of your closest friends, one of your closest friends, turns his or her back on you simply because you're a Christian. It happened to David. It happened to Christ. And if you follow Christ, it may well happen to you. Do you know, in fact, this, this kind of betrayal is so woven into the pattern of belonging to the Christ that far from unsettling us, as it did for me when I first became a Christian, actually, I, th I think it should assure us that we are legitimate members of the kingdom of the legitimate king. But again, knowing that doesn't necessarily make it an easy thing to go through. Can you imagine David's anguish? Well, of course you don't have to because he wrote a song about it, Psalm 54. And as we meditate together on this song, it's gonna help us not only process the kind of betrayals we might face, but above all the betrayal that Jesus faced. And it will help us not only be confident that nothing's gone wrong if we face that kind of betrayal, but above all, it will help us be confident that Jesus really is the legitimate king even though he was rejected. Do you see David's confidence in Psalm 54? He is utterly confident that he has God's backing. And that confidence is meant to rub off on us. Look at verses one and seven. Let's just compare them briefly, the beginning of the psalm and the end. Verse one, he says, save me, O God. But by verse seven, did you see? He, that is God, has delivered me from all my troubles. 
David grows in confidence throughout this psalm that God is on his side, that God will save him, that he's following the right path, that he really is the legitimate king, that this betrayal doesn't mean anything's gone wrong between him and God. And the psalm ends, my eyes have looked in triumph on my foes. That's a funny way to end. Because you see, actually, David's troubles were far from over. His foes were far from defeated. Again, all these psalms, particularly 52, 53, 54, they come from one section of 1 Samuel where all the troubles seem to be heaping on David, one after another, Doeg, Nabal, the Ziphites. But even after they were all passed, it was going to be years before David finally took the throne. And the kingdom was united under his rule. My eyes have looked in triumph on my foes. Well, that speaks of David's confidence. His confidence isn't rooted in his circumstances. It isn't rooted in how people treat him. His confidence is in God. If God is in your side, then it doesn't matter who else is against you. Triumph is just a matter of time. We'll look at the psalm in two halves. First, verses one to three. As Christ's people pray confidently for God's backing. That's our first point. Verses one to three. As Christ's people pray confidently for God's backing. Verse one again. Save me, O God, by your name. Vindicate me by your might. David may have many enemies, but he calls on God to save. It's a funny phrase though, isn't it? Save me, O God, by your name? What's going on here? Is God's name some sort of magic word that we have to chant and enemies will just vanish? No, of course not. David is appealing here to God's good character. That's what a name represents in Scripture. Who someone is. What they're known for. You see, God, he kind of must save David. Because God is known to be the one who sent Samuel to anoint David. God is known as the savior of his people. The savior of his king. The one who keeps his promises. And who has promised to install his king over the whole world, no matter who opposes him. If God didn't save the king, he would be denying his very self. No, God must be known for who he is. He must act in accordance with his character. But notice, it's not just God's character that's at stake here. David is also confident in his own good character. Do you see the second half of verse 1? Vindicate me by your might. This word vindicate, it's a legal word. It means to justify somebody in court, to say they've done nothing wrong, they're innocent, they're in the right. And David was betrayed and rejected by people who were claiming that he had done everything wrong. That he was an enemy of the state. That he was trying to take down the true king, Saul. But David knew that 
He was innocent. And so he prays, vindicate me. You see, God's good character and David's good character, they're they're bound up together. And both will only be seen as they deserve to be when God saves the king. And so, of course, that gives David massive confidence because God will be known for who he is. He's utterly committed to that. And so God will save the king. Verse 2. Hear my prayer, O God. Listen to the words of my mouth. Can you see the boldness in that statement? I wouldn't dream even of going up to Pete and saying, Pete, listen to the words of my mouth. I'd probably get in trouble. It sounds a bit impudent and rude, doesn't it? But David is bold because he is confident that he has God's backing. I wonder, did you notice how often David says me or my or I in this prayer? 14 times in just seven verses. Help me, save me, listen to me. Because David knows that God is personally committed to him. His chief backer on his side. And the flip side of that, of course, the flip side of God being so committed to David is that God is utterly against anybody who is against David. Verse 3. Arrogant foes are attacking me. Ruthless people are trying to kill me. People without regard for God. You see, to fail to bow the knee to David in his day was to prove that you had no regard for God. To fail to bow the knee to Jesus in our day is to prove that you have no regard for God. Last week, Andy was urging us to see people as they really are. To to accept the, the truth taught in Psalm 53 that All the world has no understanding of God, doesn't seek him, is given over to sin. And that feels like such a harsh assessment. But do you want to test whether it's true? Go try talking to people about Jesus and see what they say. Even people who are outwardly good, if they refuse to accept him as their king. Well, ultimately, this verse is true of them. They are people without regard for God. Do you know this verse, it's perhaps better translated, and it's translated this way in all the versions of the NIV. Strangers are attacking me. Modern versions of the NIV, like the one we had read, uh, change it to arrogant foes because they can't work out how David could call these people strangers. I mean, they're Ziphites. They're from the same tribe. They'd have known each other. That's why he's hiding amongst them, because he knows them. Strangers? The scribes must have made a mistake. But of course, there is no mistake. Strangers is the better translation. Because the whole point is that these people who were on the inside, who knew David, who should have been on his side, have become strangers to him and to God through their betrayal. 
I wonder, have you ever heard of Ivan the Terrible? Ever heard of him? Uh, yeah, there's a, a, a great little Radio 4 program um, about him uh, this week. You could check it out if you've never heard of him. He was an interesting guy, pretty scary. Um, terrible, not in the sense that he was a terrible ruler, uh, but terrible in the sense that he caused terror. Terrifying. He was the ruler of Russia in the 16th century, and after he died, there was a political crisis. And his son, Dmitri, could have been the next Tsar, but one after, after Ivan. But he'd been murdered, Dmitri had, uh, which kind of disqualified him for the job. But then along came different people claiming to be the real Dmitri. They're known as the false Dmitris. And there were four of them. Can you imagine? Four different people all claiming to be this dead guy. But no one took them seriously. They were obviously just pretenders to the throne. They had very little backing. Even people close to them rejected them. Well, when it comes to David and Jesus, don't they look just like the false Demetrius? Pretenders to the throne? Because they seem to have so little backing. I mean, don't be deceived by the numbers. We're a big church, aren't we, for the UK? And yet a tiny proportion of our local area comes here. Everywhere you see it, rejection. And most unsettling of all, David and Jesus were rejected by the very people you'd expect to support them. Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. We claim Jesus is king of the nations, don't we? but he couldn't even get the support of the nation of Israel. Doesn't Jewish rejection make our claim that Jesus is the king of kings ridiculous? Well, again, firstly, it has always been that way. David was the real king in waiting. He wasn't a pretender. His claim to power was legitimate, and he took power in the end. This rejection was just for a season because God backed him. And so we can back Jesus with confidence too. Even if that means we have to live through betrayal and rejection with Jesus. It's just for a season. God will save his king. In fact, you know, when we experience this kind of betrayal and rejection... Again, that is a sign that we're legitimate followers of the legitimate Messiah. I wonder if you've ever read the letters of Paul to the Thessalonians. He writes to them to encourage them that they're genuine Christians. And he comforts them, comforts them with the observation that they are suffering at the hands of their own people, their fellow Gentiles, the same things that the apostles and Jesus had suffered at the hands of their own people, the Jews. Do you see, a prophet has no honor in his hometown. That's just the way of things. And yeah, it's painful. It's unsettling. But understood properly, actually it can bring confidence and comfort that we really are backing the right king and in turn that we are backed by none other than God himself. One to three, pray confidently for God's backing. And four to six, finally, four to seven, rather, 
praise God confidently for his backing. Four to seven, praise God confidently for his backing. Um, I had a physics teacher at school. He'd spent a couple of years in Uganda, and he began every physics lesson by saying, when I was in Uganda, and it never had anything to do with the physics we were about to learn. I'm going to say, now, when I was in Belarus, um, and you'll hear me say that often over the years, please tell me if you get bored of it. I will stop. But I do think this anecdote has some relevance to this song, so bear me out. Uh, When we were in Belarus, we were in a country that's known as the last dictatorship in Europe. It has a tyrant on the throne, not dissimilar to King Saul, who's trying to kill anybody who opposes his rule. He's pretty paranoid, just like Saul was, hurting people who are actually trying to do good to the country. Last summer, he was almost toppled uh, by three women who led mass protests, and one of them was called Maria Kolesnikova, I think is how you pronounce her name. We'll call her Maria. That's easier. And she's now in jail. She's a political prisoner. And a year has gone by with her sat in prison, and the protests have petered out, and it looks as though she could be in jail for years or decades to come. And Maria's father says that he is daily tempted to despair of his daughter ever being freed, of regime change ever coming. But every day, do you know what Maria does? Every day, she writes to her father and writes with confidence about her hope for the future. The day when things will change, when there will be a change in king. And her dad says that that confidence keeps him going. It's infectious. Well, I think something similar is meant to happen as we read Psalm 54 and the confidence with which David praises God here. Did you see his confidence in these final verses? Verse 4. Surely God is my help. Look, says David. Look who's helping me. The Lord is the one who sustains me. Can't you see, says David, stop looking at the people who are betraying me and look at the one who's on my side. The Lord sustains me. More literally, God is amongst my supporters. He's one of my backers. And if God is for him, who can stand against him? Let the whole world reject David. Let the people closest to him betray him. It won't make a difference. If God is for him, he will have victory. Did you see his confidence in verses 6 to 7? Especially in the tenses of the verb here. Did you see? He says, I will sacrifice a free will offering to you. I will praise your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me. My eyes have looked in triumph on my foes. No, they haven't. No, they haven't. When David wrote this psalm, he's still hiding out in a forest on the run from Saul, intent on killing him. But with God as his backer, David can sing with confident hope. My eyes have looked in triumph on my foes, even as he's on the run for his life. It's remarkable, the confidence here. Doesn't this just 
sum up brilliantly what it should feel like to be a Christian. We sing with confident hope, not because everything's going really well, unless you hadn't noticed, it's not. But we sing with confidence because of who is on our side. God himself, backing the Lord Jesus, backing the Lord Jesus' church, his people. We can sing with confidence. Or at least, maybe we could if we'd let David's confidence rub off on us. You know, the Psalms aren't just for the summer. I know that's when we study them here, but they're not just for the summer. It used to be pretty common to read through them every day, didn't it, for Christians? Do you know, in the Church of England, apparently, when we were first sort of established, uh, we'd work through the Psalms every month, three a day, morning and night. That wouldn't be a bad thing to do, would it? I'm trying to build them into my own prayer life a little bit more. It's not going very well, uh, but I'm trying. I'm listening to um, a group called Poor Bishop Hooper, which again doesn't sort of, it's not a name that fills you with excitement, is it? Um, but Poor Bishop Hooper, they've set all the Psalms to music. If you struggle to read scripture every day, why not find them on iTunes if that's more your thing? It's not hard. And you can hear the Psalms sung to you. Or Dane Ortland. Do you remember Dane Ortland who wrote Gentle and Lowly, that book that's done the rounds over the last couple of years? He's releasing some devotionals on the Psalms soon. Check them out. Dig into them. And let the confidence of the King rub off on you daily. Maria's relentless optimism rubs off on people. Isn't that striking? It rubs off on people, even though it's not founded on anything other than a flimsy hope. Who's to say whether she'll survive jail? But our optimism can be founded on daily digging into the songbook of the Messiah, a Messiah first prophesied and prefigured in David, and who has now come in Jesus. Even that fulfillment of prophecy, shouldn't that give us confidence? But even more than that, We have a Messiah who can sing verse 7 with even more truth and reality and power than David could. Yes, he's yet to take the throne fully. But don't you remember? When his own did not receive him. When his own betrayed him by handing him over to the Romans to put him to death. God demonstrated his backing for his king by raising him from the dead. What more proof do we need that we can be confident that when we follow Jesus, that when we follow in the the same kind of rejection and betrayal that he experienced, that we are heading ultimately to a day of vindication, a day when everyone will see that it was right to follow this king. Now, I, I guess there's one thing I just want to clear up as we move to an end. Because I suspect that for lots of us, the reason we wouldn't want to pray this psalm is verse five. It's a bit uncomfortable, isn't it, verse five? Let evil recoil on those who slander me. In your faithfulness, destroy them. Aren't we supposed to pray for our enemies? For their blessing, not for their destruction. 
I mean, surely this psalm is now sub-Christian now that Jesus has come and shown us the grace of God to evil people, isn't it? Can we really take this psalm on our lips? Well, yes, the New Testament is clear. We're to do good to those who do us evil and to bless those who persecute us. But do you know what the usual New Testament motivation is to help us persevere in doing good to those who do us evil? Over and over again, it's knowing that God himself will repay. Listen to these words from Romans. Don't take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. So instead of revenge, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And you know, that's kind of exactly what David did in his day. Yes, he is praying for the downfall of his enemies, but do you know what he did when Saul was in his hands and he could have killed him and been done with all the pain? He let him go free. He did him good. You see, the point is, there is actually virtually no difference between the experience of David and our experience. And actually, when we reject this kind of prayer, it undermines our ability to keep doing good to those who hurt us. You know, knowing that my relative who tried to undermine my efforts to explain the gospel to my family, knowing that that relative will have to face God in judgment, that helps me not to grow bitter towards them. It helps me to pity them. And it helps me, even though I haven't done it for many years, (laughs) because of the wobble I felt after that betrayal, it helps me to press on in telling my family the gospel, even if I'm hated for it. We have God's backing. Let's pray that we would grow in our understanding of that and be conformed to the image of the King. Let's pray together. Father God, we pray, give us confidence always to back the Messiah that you have backed. Help us to do it even at the cost of being rejected by those closest to us. Make us worthy of your King, our Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.